This episode is dedicated to the memory of Dave Harrison. Hello and welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, presented by me, Dave, the history nerd. And by me, Dave, the tech geek. And today we're looking at the story of a gentleman named Flight Sergeant James Patrick Dowd. Yes, I have on good authority that this is not the MP for Lewisham and Penge (laughs) from 1992 till 2017. Good. I also have on excellent authority it is not his father either, who was in the RAF. Really? Yes, and also bore the same name. So it is not either of them. (laughs) And by total coincidence, it was a completely different James Patrick Dowd who was in the RAF at the same time. (laughs) That is an incredible coincidence. It is an incredible coincidence. Yeah, fair enough. While I was doing some research for this episode, so I came across the name and thought, that's odd. <laughs> that's a coincidence, surely. But uh, yeah, so this is a completely different James Patrick Dowd. Right. So this flight sergeant, James Patrick Dowd, was in Bomber Command. He flew in Manchester twin-engine bombers and was a wireless operator. Right. So he flew out of RAF Scampton which I believe is in Lincolnshire, and is actually the modern-day base for the Red Arrows. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, I, th- I thought so too, actually. Yeah. So although he was you know, flying bombers out of it, it is now where the Red Arrows are based. Ah, cool. Um, which is brilliant, because yeah. we, we all love Red Arrows. And who doesn't? Yeah, exactly. Fantastic display team. So, <laughs> so yeah, he was flying his Manchester twin-engine bomber, mm-hmm. as I said, out of uh, Scampton on the 13th of March 1942, and they were on their way to bomb Cologne. So they didn't actually reach Cologne, and they were shot down on the way. Right, okay. So the stretch from sort of Lincolnshire, where a lot of the bomber squadrons were based, over the Netherlands and Belgium, on the way to Germany was kind of a bomber's corridor, if you right. like. Right, you know, okay. that's kind of the route that they followed on their way to sort of going over to bomb the major cities and yep. ports and docks of Germany. And so he was actually shot down while over this corridor. Okay. Round about the Dutch-German frontier. So they were shot down and he actually parachuted out, landing near Nemegen, actually, which is right on the border. And he went to a nearby farm, basically, to seek help. And so he says that, you know, he reached the door of the farm and the man and woman and two children were standing there. I heard them talking and as I thought I was in... In Holland, I called the man over and told him I was a British airman. He took me into his house and got me a cup of coffee. I was in the house for about 10 minutes and got out my escape maps. Just as the man was pinpointing my position, the door opened and two policemen came in. It was then that I realised I was actually in Germany and that the man had sent his son for the police. What a mistake to make. Yeah, that's a really unfortunate error. You know, oh. you've kind of got a 50-50 chance. If you know roughly where you're yeah. being shot down, you know, you're know, you going to be one side of the border or the other. And if you get a civilian on the other side, you've got a better than average chance chance of maybe at least some assistance or at least not being handed in yeah of course um but the dutch language and the german language do sound fairly similar yeah so. i was gonna say he must have he must have had someone who spoke well enough english and sounded dutch enough to, conv- to, to convince him that he was there all whilst his son was secretly just going to the police behind his back. Yeah, so an unfortunate start to his... <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, not, it's not the best not the best start we've had so far. No, to his, to his time on the continent, shall we say. <laughs> so, having been arrested by the German police, interestingly, they actually took him back over the border and took him to the police station in the Netherlands. <laughs> which I found quite interesting. Yeah. So they, they take him to, as I say, to Nemegen. So they've taken 
taken them to Namagan and kept there for a couple of hours at the Luftwaffe HQ, giving coffee, some food, that sort of thing. Um, but he says he wasn't interrogated there, but they had taken from him his escape kit. <laughs> right. And some money that he had on him, that sort of thing. And from there, he was then taken to Utrecht and then taken further to Amsterdam. So although he was captured in Germany... He's actually headed north and gone all the way to the North Sea <laughs> coast and gone to Amsterdam. Yeah. So he's taken to Amsterdam for his initial interrogation. And now this is despite the fact that he then returned to Germany and go to Dulag Luft, where he was actually given further interrogation. But as I say, he was taken to Amsterdam initially and he was asked for his name, rank and number. And of course he gave that. Yes perfectly acceptable but he didn't give him any further information and he actually links up with pilot officer mcdonald from the pru which is photographic reconnaissance unit which is the branch of the raf we discussed in, with um, sandy gun with on sandy gun from episode six of series one yes and having par- i say partnered up with pilot officer mcdonald they were both captured and taken <laughs> to dulac luft and so that yeah they were taken back south over the border to Dulag Luft, which was, it was relatively close to the Dutch border. Yeah. It was about, I looked up, it was about 200 kilometres away okay, from the Dutch okay. border, but it is in that sort of northwest corner of yeah. Germany. That's what I mean by it's relatively yeah. close. So it, just, it, it just seems like an odd travel back and it, forth. It seemed a very odd decision to take him all the way up to Amsterdam, interrogate him there and take him back to Dulag Luft for further interrogation. Yeah. And so having arrived at Dulag Luft, which of course many of our, certainly pilots, yeah. or airmen I should say, were of course taken to do like most which was the transit camp in which they were initially held for mm-hmm. initial interrogation before entering the wider prisoner of war camp population yes so having arrived in Dulag Luft, he was, of course, put into a containing cell. Yes. Uh, his uniform and flying boots were taken from him. These were searched, of course. Mm. Although they'd already taken his escape kit and any money on him. As we know from other reports, it was not uncommon for captured prisoners of war to secrete paraphernalia that may be useful <laughs> to escape, either on their person or hidden in their clothing. So probably very wise for them to have taken his yeah. uniform and searched and it thoroughly. It through, yeah. I quite liked his description of the interrogations he seems to have had a bit of a sense of humor about this yes certainly didn't seem in the least bit bothered by being interrogated he didn't seem worried at all did he no so he says that he was on his first day he was interrogated by an officer who spoke good english he gave me a red cross form to fill in i said i would keep it for when i went to the lavatory next (laughs) so i suppose having already given name rank and number he clearly thinks, you know, he clearly knows that yeah. this is absolutely nonsense. He doesn't nonsense. have to do anything else. And, and so he, he has such high regard for the Germans' efforts to get further intelligence and information out of him that he intends to use it as toilet paper. <laughs> Although, interestingly, you know, Dulag Luft was notorious for stool pigeons, for bugging of rooms, yeah. that sort of thing. It, you know, everyone kind of knew it was going on. And there is some evidence in this report that there were stool pigeons within yes. the camp, which I'm sure we'll get to later. Mm-hmm. So they actually come back to him and say oh you were in the 83rd squadron which he was that is true but although he doesn't acknowledge that he uh, so they did manage to sort of gather some information yeah on him and were able to tell him as i say although he didn't acknowledge it he basically he says i refuse to speak and the officer interrogating them responded with the scots have very bad manners which i i think is damned cheek wow. quite frankly i don't uh, know yeah. evidence evidence to the contrary who, who is this person and <laughs> and who does he think he's speaking to um and i should probably say for clarity jim uh, flight sergeant james dowd is from edinburgh so is a scot and he even says you know the the interrogating officer realized from my accent that he came from scotland 
<clears throat> on the third day of interrogation though i actually find this the most interesting as yeah. amusing as the first two kind of were that this was the form of interrogation i found most interesting because they're clearly trying to extrapolate some information on the circuitry of the wireless sets being used by raf bombers here yes because they basically <clears throat> give him photographs and circuit drawings of as i say the wireless sets and he says in the <clears throat> report he, he do, again he doesn't acknowledge it to the interrogator but he does say in the report that i noticed that the most important circuit was missing from the drawings of the circuitry of the wireless set that they used so clearly they didn't have all the information they were looking for yeah or all the information on these wireless sets and we're trying to draw it out of them just you know trying to interrogate him to try and get this information yeah from him. I, I wasn't sure at first whether that was them trying to sort of trip him up by him being like arrogant and saying oh you haven't got that middle bit there or whether they just genuinely didn't have the intelligence yet i suppose either is possible but the way as i say the way it came across to me was that they didn't have all the information yeah. and were trying to cross interrogate him to gather that information which is very cheeky of them very, very cheeky of them but they have just said that the scots are bad mannered so well that's um, th you know they can't be correct about everything they are a particularly <laughs> cheeky bunch shall we say at Duleg Luft at this time so having been held in the holding camp he's actually moved to the main camp at Duleg Luft for a while and there was actually an escape attempt from <clears throat> the main camp at Dulag Luft, which is why they, when they said there was some evidence that there were stool pigeons held within the camp. And in actual fact, upon his arrival in the camp, he says that he was approached by a flight lieutenant who warned him against talking because of the existence of microphones and stool <laughs> pigeons and then had advised him not to trust anyone except people he'd known back in the uk yeah which is sound advice it's sound advice and i, I found it interesting because although we've talked about the fact that they did bug buildings and everything before and you've mentioned it before i think this is the first time we've seen an example of someone mention it directly in a report yes absolutely and, 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 and also the impact that it had yeah it's probably worth saying briefly at this stage that we were doing exactly the same thing oh i'm sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> and there is an excellent book by helen fry the walls have ears that describes all of this yeah. and our own efforts to shamelessly bug <laughs> Germans that we held yeah. as prisoners of war in the United Kingdom. So this this is not a moralistic thing. No, it is, no. It is purely the this as you say. This is the first time that we have come across. Yeah, I just found that as an as an interesting point for 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 out the stories that we've looked at. Yes, this is the first time that someone's mentioned it directly in a report saying shh, don't talk, the wolves have ears, kind of thing. Yes, exactly. And I think it's actually worth describing the escape effort that kind of proves that there was evidence of this. Yes. So. It, it wasn't actually by Dowd, interestingly enough. He just kind of described someone else's escape mm -hmm. effort from Dulag Luft, as I say, which he considered evidence that there were stool pigeons there. So I'll just quickly read out his description. At the end of March, so this is March 1942, at the end of March, an attempted escape was made by Pilot Officer Key, again of the PRU. He hid in the camp as a sergeant to give the Germans the impression that he had escaped. So this is similar to the ghosting yes. uh, that we talked about previously in the thompson yes episode. yeah thompson so yes he he actually hid himself inside the camp and after two days of searching the germans had concluded he had actually escaped there were only a few sergeants and a few permanent staff that knew he was still there so when i say permanent staff at somewhere like Dulag Luft, they would have sort of semi-permanent British and allied prisoners of war that were there as sort of permanent internees yeah. to just keep the, you know, you'd have a permanent SBO and that sort of thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. Senior British officer just to kind of maintain discipline and yeah, okay. keep the thing turning over because this you still needed routines around messing, mm -hmm. latrine duty, right, that sort yeah. of thing. So you kind of needed a permanent staff because if you were constantly turning it over every <laughs> couple of weeks, then it would be a bit of chaos. It would be absolute chaos. Yeah. So that's okay. 
what, yeah, yeah, that's that what they mean by permanent staff. It's right. not like there was a couple of Germans just sitting there what, that knew this guy <laughs> was still there. Yeah, okay, that makes um, total sense. So, as part of his plan to escape, pilot officer Key buried himself in the sheep pen in the playing field with only a piece of piping sticking out of the ground to breathe through. He was buried for about two hours. Not an experience I would particularly enjoy. I was going to say... That sounds horrifying. Yes. However, when the guard came to lock the gate of the playing field in the evening, he went straight to the sheep pen, which he had never done before, kicked up the earth and pulled out Pilot Officer Key. I'm of the opinion that his plan to escape had definitely been given away to the Germans by someone in the camp. Yeah, I mean, that seems pretty cut and dry. The, the guy knew exactly where to look for him. It does a little bit, yeah. yeah. So, having gone through the Dulag Luft experience, which mm-hmm. many of them did, he was then taken to Stalag 8B, which is Lambsdorff. Yes. Now, we have come across Lambsdorff before we several times and I have previously described it as a little bit of a sieve <laughs> yes. um, now I think to some extent that is because there were a number of satellite camps around Lambsdorff yep. mentioned before about how NCOs and other ranks were required to work therefore there were often a number of small working camps that were administered from a central major camp Yeah, and so there were a number of these smaller camps we'll come to that point later but we, we now find ourselves with Flight Sergeant Dowd in Lambsdorff yes. and I actually thought there was quite an interesting detail that he mentioned upon arrival, which was our flying boots were taken from us, possibly to be sent to the German army on the Russian front, and we were given wooden clogs. So this is less than a year since the invasion of Russia, Operation Barbarossa. Mm-hmm. which some might argue was the major turning point of the war in that Hitler effectively opened up a second front. Yes. Which then meant that they were stretching their resources yeah. very far, uh-huh. both in terms of having to cover two fronts, but also the sheer distance to Moscow from Berlin. Yeah, it's a long old way. I say Moscow, I also mean Stalingrad and Leningrad yeah. as it was then, now St. Petersburg. Stalingrad is now Volgograd and... Leningrad is now St. Petersburg. Right. So, I mean, the sheer distance is covered and the stretching of the supply line from Berlin all the way to these three major cities in Russia... It was really, really stretching the resources of Germany at this time. Even though they were still dominant on the continent of Europe, the resources and manpower as well were really stretched. So so already, you know, we're talking about April 1942. The invasion of Russia took place in June 1941. So we're only talking 10 months here. It'd been a tough winter as well. Russian winters, famously so. Yeah, Um, not very kind. And it it wasn't going to get any easier over the next two and a half years. Spoiler alert for (laughs) for the German army, but... um, (laughs) Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so I just find it really interesting that they were already removing... I was going to say, they're stealing shoes to give away. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. What must life be like living in the camps with the sound of everyone with wooden clogs? Yeah, it must have been pretty <laughs> awful, actually. Just lots of... Monty Python Monty and, the, Python. Whole, and the Holy Grail where they've exactly got the coconuts. That's what I was thinking, yeah. So yeah, it, it must have been really, really infuriating, just wood on wood, yeah. essentially. <laughs> So he made a couple of attempts prior to his final successful attempt. Right. And although we won't go into too much detail on the previous escape attempts, because we're ultimately most interested in the successful one, I think it is worth looking at at them briefly, because he had some quite interesting experiences. So the first attempt was while he was in one of these satellite camps at Rotfest. Mm -hmm. 
which is now called Rudava, which is in southwest Poland near the Polish-Czech border. Right. Okay. Yeah, so he was located there, and as I say, these were all working camps. Um, yeah. He was a sergeant, so therefore an NCO, non-commissioned officer. He was required to work. Mm-hmm. He was working on clearing the bed of a canal in a 50-man working group. One detail I found quite interesting was, I escaped with a soldier from Newcastle, name unknown. I, I found that interesting as well. <laughs> yes, it sounds to me like they literally just kind of looked at each other and said, should we leg it? Yeah. Like, yep, let's go for it. And and that is pretty much what happened, actually. He <laughs> says, we escaped through the window of our room by bending back the bars, which actually is marginally more sophisticated than some of his later efforts, so <laughs> possibly shouldn't <laughs> shouldn't judge too harshly. But it does sound like they just kind of, you know... Just pulled the bars Yeah, apart. and just squeezed through. Yeah. And as I say, very close to the Polish-Czech border. Yeah. And he does say that, you know, they planned to make their way to Prague because they'd heard in the camp that there were Czechoslovakian organisations that would help them go onwards to Switzerland. Yeah. It's certainly true that were, you know, there were undoubtedly Czech resistance groups who, if they'd find themselves in that situation, would certainly have given any assistance they could have done. Uh, I'm not too aware of any organised evasion, escape or evasion lines from Prague to S- Switzerland. Right, okay. Um, <clears throat> but equally, I can't absolutely categorically say there weren't any. Yeah. And as I say, there were certainly resistance groups that existed in Czechoslovakia yeah. that would, I'm sure, have given any assistance to an allied POW escapee. You know, equally, having made a bit of an impromptu escape, he actually had quite a decent escape kit on him. So he said that had a map which he got in the camp <laughs> and a supply of food which would have been enough for one man for about three weeks that's actually quite a decent stretch it is yeah and it makes it made me sort of question because he said you know met this uh, name unknown <clears throat> that he escaped with mm-hmm. does that mean that all of the stuff that they had for as an you know for the escape he would have just halved all of his own stuff and because the guy other guy presumably would have had nothing on him if he'd just met him and decided to run away there and then. Yeah, possibly. So it is, it's probably fair to say that that is not clarified either way. You no, know, it, doesn't say, just... it doesn't say that unknown fellow escaper didn't have his own supplies, but it equally doesn't say that he did. Yeah. Um, so it's unclear as to whether this three weeks worth of supply, which does state that it was for one man, whether it was to be shared or whether it was just his supply. But it, I mean, that's quite an impressive supply to have gathered together in just a couple couple of months that, yeah absolutely um, and so he actually managed to reach the hills on the czechoslovakian frontier so he's now into the sort of czech sudeten land that hilly border area between poland germany and uh, right, uh yeah yeah what is now the Czech Republic yeah Czechoslovakia then but having lost his compass and run out of food he basically was in a situation where he had to approach a farm for assistance mm-hmm. and once again the owner of the house turned out to be a Sudeten German, which some might say is starting to become a recurring theme. I was going to say, this guy must have either the worst luck in the world when when meeting new people just to sort of out and about on the street, or the worst judgment of where they are from yes, yeah. in the world. Like he listen, he like he doesn't, he just can't tell from a person where from their accent or whatever where they're from, because he's. This is not the first time this has happened in this story. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And, you know, the, the Sudetenland is a well-known, quite contentious area around this time. Yeah. It was well-known for, you know, Hitler in, invaded the Sudetenland initially to uh, reunify the German, uh, the Sudeten Germans with Greater Germany, if you like. Yes. So, so it was well-known that there was quite a high German population yeah. in this area. 
And so it seems to that he took a bit of a high gamble <laughs> on this one. Uh, however, they seem to have taken quite kindly to him because they just took him straight back to camp. They, yeah. you know, there was no kind of <laughs> hanging around. Uh, it was just kind of back you go. go. Yes, no, exactly. So having returned to the camp, I actually loved this detail. Uh, they were put into the punishment compound of the camp to, to await his turn to go into the cells, which, as usual, were crowded. Yeah. So basically, in solitary confinement people are <laughs> misbehaving so not necessarily just escape <laughs> but they are misbehaving so much that the but, solitary confinement punishment cells are quote-unquote as usual crowded yeah there is a waiting line there's a waiting list to get into solitary confinement exactly however while they are he was approached by a captain webster who I assume was involved in some way, shape, or form in the escape committee, because he, this Captain Webster, said that he would help him make another attempt at escape. Yeah. So while in the punishment compound, he initially went under the name of Bruce, the name of the soldier who whose place he had taken on the working party when he initially arrived. He had basically switched places yeah. to go on a particular working party because he felt it would give him a better chance of escaping. Mm-hmm. So he, he continued to go by the name of the soldier. However, he was recognised by one of the German guards well a ukrainian serving in the german army as a guard who reported them he was actually given an initial seven days punishment to serve so usually he'd just be given seven days he was given an additional seven days yeah. and had to do a full fortnight in the punishment compound seems a bit harsh to basically double his punishment for that <laughs> yes it does he th- this ukrainian serving in the german army seemed to take his escape attempt a little bit personally yeah. here <laughs> However, that, that didn't dampen Dowd's spirits, shall we say, who I actually find this quite interesting. He seems to be fairly fast and loose with which names he takes. Yeah. Because he then promptly switches identity with another person. So I found this quite an interesting point, whereby the person in question is a driver, Jeffrey Roberts, of the Royal Army Service Corps. So that's things like Cook's drivers that right. sort of thing, okay yeah who was also by the sounds of it an inveterate escaper too yeah. and was more than happy to serve time in solitary confinement because in his case he was anxious to make another attempt at escape but wanted more time to build up a food supply from the red cross parcels so basically volunteered to swap his time in so while so he, so he remained in the he, um, he remained so roberts had four days left and dowd had 10 days left and they switched and right. he stayed on for an extra six days in the camp. So yes, ha- having basically switched places, he then, although he was made to serve 14 days solitary confinement, because he had switched places, he was essentially given a shortened yeah, he, imprisonment. He, yeah. And interestingly, the guard, a different guard, but the guard who was signing his release form didn't actually believe that he was the person who he was releasing. But because Dow just refused to acknowledge he was anyone else, he just signed it anyway. Yeah. Which just sounds like belligerence over everything else, you know, just power through and eventually it'll all come sort itself out. Yeah. So again, he was returned to the camp at Rockfest, uh, as I say, Rudava now in southwest Poland. So he'd be making plans with this Captain Webster who's been helping him make a second yep. escape plan and plans were effectively already in place by the time he'd reached the camp. Uh, so the plan was to go north, first of all, and then head west towards France. Uh, the reason being for that was... it's the Dieppe raid had just taken place and so they kind of mistakenly believed that a second front had been opened up right. on the continent Okay, and so he was hoping to join the invading British forces but 
so they clearly heard that Dieppe had happened, so they yeah. were thinking, well, we'll join up with these guys. <laughs> so they collected food, had maps, and even managed to retain an attache case from his first escape. Not sure how he did that, but quite impressive. Yeah. So having returned to the camp at Rockfest, they stole civilian clothes from the German workmen's dining room and bicycles from the factory. There seems to be a bit of a recurring theme on <laughs> bike thievery amongst yeah. our escapees and so having left the factory and cycled to a nearby town they they attempted to jump on a goods train but the train was moving too fast so they continued north i must admit i find this quite entertaining the way they were recaptured on this one Uh, yeah they they didn't get very far they only got a couple of towns down but while passing through this town they came to a roundabout and being british he of course swung left yep round the roundabout when he should have gone right this of course attracted the attention of two policemen who were standing right next to this roundabout (laughs) stopping them and asking them for papers and because they had no papers they were of course arrested yeah Um, but the particular detail i quite enjoyed other than the roundabout was we arrived at the station just as the duty sergeant was taking down the particulars of our escape from the camp yeah so news had only just got that far (laughs) Yes, yeah, exactly. So had they gone right, they quite possibly would have got a reasonable distance because we've seen in other escapes that travelling by bike, you can actually get quite far. You can cover a long distance, yeah. Exactly. However, as I said last time, this Ukrainian guard serving in the German camp took it quite personally the first time, but he really took it personally <laughs> this time. It, and it, 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 I mean, in some ways, it's quite serious. You know? Yeah, he really seems to have a personal vendetta against him. Yeah, I mean, he basically went into his solitary cell with two other guards who held him against the wall while this Ukrainian guard beat him up. Yeah, that's... M- yeah it's talk about taking that escape personally yes exactly and again seven days was added to his sentence meaning that he had to serve 21 days and all but this time he served the entire sentence i i found that interesting the the line i served the whole of this sentence given that we know every all of the cages and everything are just completely overcrowded and we've talked about it before in previous escapes that People were sentenced a certain amount of days, but quite often that would be cut short because other people needed to go into the cells. He was forced to serve this entire sentence. Yep, all 21 days. And I'm sure that has everything to do with this personal grievance from this um, from this Ukrainian guard. Yeah, there does seem to be some beef between yeah. the Ukrainian guard and Dowd. So after he was taken out of solitary confinement he was initially taken to hospital because he was a bit unwell but then was eventually taken to a camp at what is now Grotkov in Poland almost immediately you can actually see a greater level of sophistication in the amount of preparation and detail and attention to detail that they go into yeah there's just a there's a noticeable step up in the effort and efforts made I should say. Yeah, yeah. So he says, even while in hospital, I'd studied maps brought in by Sergeant Crony of the RAF, and from the escape committee, he had obtained a Bescheiningung and an Ausweis. Now, I've come across the Ausweis quite regularly because it it is, in effect, a a work permit to prove that the are capable of working but the Bescheinigung I had never really heard of before and it literally means certificate and you receive it from your workplace so it is a certification of employment so I think I'm right in saying that the Ausweis is evidence that you have a pass to be employed yes 
And the Bescheinigung is a certificate that you are employed. Right, so it's proof of a specific job. I like, think so, oh, yeah. Right, so okay. that, yeah, that was I, my reading of it. So if, if any listeners do know better, I'm I'm all ears. Yeah, uh, genuinely. I, I'll admit, I didn't know what that meant at all. <laughs> so yes, they've been able to see uh, copies of these papers. And I must admit, I was actually very impressed by the level of detail that they were able to get into these. And again, we're already talking about, you know, they were able to obtain papers. This is just another level of... yeah. Uh, sophistication in their efforts. So it says the the Bishanengung stated that I was a Belgian worker named Jan Dijk and that my Arbeitsbuch, which is a workbook, mm-hmm. was in the central registry for stamping. So what I find interesting about that is they're cross-referencing between different forms of papers, even though one of them doesn't exist. They don't have it, but they've justified why they don't have it. Yeah, because uh, yeah, anyone looking at that will read that and just think it's being processed somewhere else for something else. It, exactly. So he, he then says, the Eisweiss certified that I'd been working in Dresden and had to proceed as quickly as possible, which was a phrase inserted to cover travel by Schnellzug, which is basically the express train, mm-hmm. to Stettin to report to the Labour Bureau there for further work in the war factory. The Eisweiss also stated that my Arbeitsbuch and Lenzettel, which is the paybook, were following through the usual official channel. So again, they're adding detail to justify why he doesn't have specific forms yes. of paperwork on him at the time. Both documents bore what purported to be the stamps and signatures of the Polizei president and the chief of the Labour Bureau in Dresden, and both also stated that I had permission to travel by rail. So, as I say, you know, extremely detailed forgeries of papers and level of detail and attention to detail I thought was very impressive, actually. You're right, and it's so much more than his previous attempts. Yeah, he also says that he collected a considerable store of chocolate, presumably from Red Cross parcels, for his journey, and my plan was to escape from a working party and get to Stettin from there by ship to Sweden. Even before leaving, he'd been given 50 Reichmarks to pay for his travel. So mm-hmm. he's preparing for the escape even before he's been transferred to the camp that he's now in the one in Grokov. Yeah, because this is all still within the hospital, right? Uh, Yes, yeah, Yeah. exactly. And so all of this has been prepared, as you say, while he's still in the hospital. So then when he transfers to Grokov, he's then basically ready to go. Actually, I I admire his patience because he says that he waited for about two months while working there, almost in order to assimilate so that he kind of just became part of the furniture. But it also allowed him some time to, what he describes as, go into strict training (laughs) for for his escape. However, a cynical part of me, so... Prisoners of war were almost obsessed with food. Yeah. Because they were permanently semi-starving. Yes. He actually says that the food here was first class. Most of it came from Red Cross parcels. And the German civilian butcher gave us pork chops about twice a week. I reckon that's the sort of thing you hang around for. Yeah, it's it's not the worst meals in the world, is it? (laughs) No, no, not at all. And, you know, he also says that he was given extra rations by a Corporal Taylor, who was in charge of the work commando. Um, He was able to get eggs from civilian workers in exchange for articles of civilian clothing, which he'd received in parcels from home. Mm -hmm. So, you know, once you kind of got a half-decent wardrobe, there wasn't a lot of storage space, so you could start bartering the clothes, that sort of stuff. Right. And he was doing that in exchange for food. And he he also managed to acquire another 100 Reichmarks in exchange for socks, tea, cocoa, which the socks, well, may or may not have come from Red Cross Parcel or from the parcel from home, but certainly the tea and cocoa would have done. So, you know, he's building up an impressive escape kit, yeah. u- utilising the resources that he had access to. And, you know, equally, he also had a really, ex- you know, impressive disguise almost. You know, the, the, the cl- collection of clothes that he had access to was actually quite impressive. So he had a green jacket, which he stole. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Pair of 
battle dress trousers which he had dyed brown and he'd actually obtained the dye in exchange for some cigarettes and had dyed the trousers himself. He had a shirt from a parcel from home, a blue pullover also from a parcel from home, a tie with red and white stripes which he had bartered for, army socks and civilian shoes from also from a parcel from home. So yeah. he's building up quite, you know, he, he will assimilate quite easily into the local yeah. population based upon his appearance. And so, you know, by this stage, he was perfectly ready to escape. And I mentioned earlier that, you know, the one where they pulled the bars open was quite sophisticated in comparison mm-hmm. to his later efforts. He describes his escape as the guard was having supper at the time and I just walked out. <laughs> Which is amazing. It's fantastic. I mean, I almost admire the total lack of security <laughs> that went into this. Yeah. From the Germans' perspective, you know, the guards just made no effort whatsoever. It's like they made it easy for him to just to just walk out. Yes, but I suppose this kind of goes back to what we've discussed before about officers versus NCOs and other ranks having to work, but also the trade-off of officers not having to work, but then the security around them was far higher. Yeah. Whereas the NCOs and other ranks were having to do quite often manual labour, which yeah. would exhaust them. But this level of security was so low around them that because they had to go out and yeah, work in the field, in the field so you can't yeah. you can't have the entire field surrounded by guards. You'd have one, maybe two guards for an entire field. Yeah. So the level of security was so low that the opportunities were actually quite regular and quite quite easy it wasn't yeah. hard as Dowd kind of <laughs> kind of displays by saying he literally just walked out yeah so ha- having got out they basically walk to the nearest train station and catch a train to Brislau which is about 60 kilometers away from the camp mm-hmm. so we know that trains are the easiest way to get away quickly yes but also indeed. you have to pay for them produce papers avoid security avoid security so you know pluses and minuses yeah. and actually if anything this particular train that they managed to get themselves onto was even higher security yeah because it turned out to be a special train carrying troops back from the russian front <laughs> and almost immediately the conductress was coming around asking and asking them what he was doing on a Wehrmachtzug, which is army train so this is a specific train that's been set aside for soldiers full of enemy soldiers that he's trying to avoid Yes. And he just steps straight onto it. Yes. And <laughs> but he he blags it. He basically blags it and and also bribes them, whereby he gives them a couple of marks which he calls an additional fare. I took that as a bribe. Yeah. Yeah, that that I read it as basically here's a couple of sliding some coins across the across to the conductress <laughs> and just look the other way. Yes, I am not here. Okay. Yes. But despite that, and almost, well, arguably because of that, he does say that being pretty much the only civilian on the this entire train, yeah, he was being eyed suspiciously by pretty much every soldier, SS member, policeman. I can I can transport. understand that. I'm not necessarily saying they're wrong. In fact, yeah. quite the opposite. They are quite literally right. Yes, we we have prisoner war escapees slap bang in the middle of probably several hundred Wehrmacht soldiers. Yeah, he should not be there. No, he shouldn't. And in actual fact, a member of the Luftwaffe basically went over to the conductress and asked why he was there. And But oddly enough, a member of the SS actually vouched for him. Now, that's a detail I quite enjoy. Yeah. Uh, so the member of the SS basically says, oh yeah, the conductress has already spoken to me. He, he's paid the fare. So having reached Bl- Brislau um, about 10 o'clock he, at night, so he, he, he orders a ticket from Brislau to Frankfurt and Aroda, which leaves just after midnight the following day and although this is the slow train he's getting far away I mean, yeah th- this is 300 kilometers away and he reaches there 
around about half six in the morning. Having reached Frankfurt, you know, he says that I have a wash and a brush up on the station, go to the waiting room, eat some food, drink a bottle of beer, which he brought, walk around the town and return to the station about 8.30 in the morning. He's doing normal everyday tasks. Like he's fitting in, you know, he's making himself assimilate, as I say. Yeah, although a bit early for the beer? Oh no. It's never too early. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, given his circumstance, I don't, I'm not going yeah. to be mad at him for having a morning beer. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, if you can't have a beer at 6.30 in the morning when you're on the run through occupied Europe, when can you? Well, good point. Yeah. <laughs> so having got back to the station at 8.30 in the morning, he gets another train to Eberswalde, which is about 30 miles northeast of Berlin. And he, he quite specifically says that he had intended to avoid Berlin at all costs. Yeah. Which seems very smart to me, quite frankly. Yeah. So having reached Eberswalde, he has a quick bite to eat some uh, coffee and biscuits and gets on a, yet another train for Stettin, which is a major dockyard on the Baltic Sea. And he actually reaches Stettin at 5.30 in the afternoon, evening the following day. So in less than 24 hours, he's reached Stettin, which is 550 kilometres away from his camp. That's pretty good. It is. In fact, it's, it's very impressive. But as, as we've seen in previous escapes where they've headed to Stettin, it seems to be almost easy to get there pretty quickly, but getting out of Stettin is a real challenge. Yeah, it seems to slow down at Stettin, doesn't it? It, it does. And in actual fact, Dowd was to be in Stettin for quite a while six days in fact so he got there in under a day and yeah. then spent another six days trying to get out of Stettin having arrived in Stettin he is essentially looking for a Swedish Swedish sailors yeah. or or to make his way to Sweden you know that's the, the only neutral country in northern Europe yeah. at this stage other than Ireland but there weren't a lot of Irish sailors kicking around in occupied Europe at no. this time so he's basically trying to make his way to Sweden and I actually kind of admired his brutal honesty here because he, he goes to a brothel yeah. which i must admit if you're looking for sailors in the port there are worse places to go than a brothel <laughs> yeah, it's true and the, the brothel kind of <laughs> comes up quite regularly in, in in this story over the next six days that he's there <laughs> he does manage to make some contacts and what have you and, yeah and it seems that he's making progress and he you know he goes on a small pleasure steamer that goes around the harbor yeah which we've actually come across before in a previous episode so he's making the reconnaissance of the harbor on this pleasure steamer this is exactly what philpot did it is yeah um which was episode two episode of series two. one there's a bit of regularity you yeah know, um this the steamer seems to give them a chance to reconnoiter the harbor almost to the point that you think why are they still putting on this the, the uh, ste- pleasure yeah. steamer but <laughs> but they did having done that he starts getting himself into a routine where you know you'll go to the harbour, eat some, you know, have some lunch, try and make contacts, that sort of thing. And he actually returns to the brothel a couple of days later. And there was quite quite an interesting incident that takes place there, because he says, while I was at the brothel, the Gestapo arrived, which is rarely good news. Um, yes. Uh, I got hold of a Polish girl and went straight upstairs to her room. She spoke German and I told her I was a British airman. At first she was scared, but I coaxed her around and she hid me under the bed. She sat on the bed and when the Gestapo man came in, he merely looked around and walked out. So he's escaped 
arrest and the Gestapo, but the girl, he says that the girl then told me to leave it at once, but to come back the next evening and meet her outside the door before the house closed. She said that she would try and find some pro-British Swedes. So having returned to the brothel, as I say, there are worse places to go if you're looking for a sailor in a port. Yes. He, he seems to be building up this network of contacts who seem willing to help him. He, you know, he's, he's staying in boarding houses or he's dossing down in beds in foreign worker camps that existed around this time. However, he, he also seems to be getting noticed more and more because of this because he's kind of making a little bit of a splash he's also coming to the attention of the police yeah uh, who actually one morning when he's actually staying in the foreign workers camp actually come to the camp and start asking him questions and they check for his story but it's actually quite an interesting story because he's, he's essentially posing as a, as a Swedish sailor yeah even though he's trying to find a Swedish sailor he's yeah. posing as one okay um <laughs> but he's staying in a Dutch workers camp right so so i'm not necessarily blaming the police for questioning them yes however he says that the police asked me what i was doing in the camp and i said there was a swedish seaman that had missed the tram the night before and that i was now going to my ship where i had to start work at uh, 0600 hours fortunately i was wearing the small swedish seaman's union badge which one of the dutchmen had given me one of the germans recognized the badge and believed my story they told me to get out and not come back i of course left the camp at once yeah which, again, <laughs> seems wise. So yeah. he, he's now managed to evade the SS, the Gestapo, and the local police. I mean, he's doing well, but he's cutting it pretty fine. He, he is a bit, yeah. He's, he's certainly walking a tightrope. And to be honest, for the next couple of days, he just he effectively just wanders around. <laughs> and it doesn't make much progress, quite frankly, to the point that he seems to kind of just give up on seeking help and so tries to blag his way onto a ship by climbing the fence into the quay and making his way to a Swedish ship. But he gets spotted by the local police uh. and pretends to be drunk. <laughs> okay. Which, given that he's knocking back the beers at 9.30 in the morning, may- maybe, the- maybe the policeman had a point. Um, yeah. But he tries to claim that he's got 20 ice vice on him and pulls out a packet of 20 cigarettes and stumbling around and just generally you know passing trying to pass himself off as drunk to be fair he does mention the name of a swedish ship that is in the docks but the policeman essentially just kind of escorts him away and you know points him in the direction be on your way yes exactly (laughs) and so as i say for a couple of days he does seem to just be wandering around aimlessly a little bit and seems to have lost his direction a little bit to the point that he says i then decided it was do or die and started to go back to the quay while there five danish seamen stopped and asked me the way to the nearest restaurant i took them into a pub nearby and told them who i was one of them spoke english and this seems to be his lucky break as they basically agreed to take him back to their ship and hide him. However, the ship was moored in the river rather than dock because the sailing had been delayed on account of some riots in Denmark. And so they they basically take him to a rowing boat and take him out there. And the you know there there's a German watchman who's basically searching them for you know stowaways that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. As if they would have. <laughs> why, why would they suspect that they might very be sus- very suspicious behavior? Oh. I feel um, you know they should be trusting them more. <sighs> and so while they're rowing out to the ship, they basically make a plan saying, "Oh, I've got half a bottle of schnapps. We'll get him a bit drunk and send him on his way." And so when they actually get to the ship, it turns out that he's already quite drunk. Okay. And so they just <laughs> top him up and yeah. send him on his way. And ha- having sent this blind drunk german back to the coast in the rowing boat he forgets to actually count how many people are on board (laughs) thus missing the fact that there's one extra body yeah 
But then the seamen don't even tell the officers on, on the ship that he's there. They just kind of keep him in their cabin. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, and just <laughs> pretend that he's not there. So although he gets away perfectly fine, they get away from Stettin. The only problem is they actually go to Riga, which is the wrong direction. Right. So he ends up in Riga in Latvia. He arrived in Stettin on the 31st of August. He leaves on the 5th of September, so he's been there six, seven days. Mm-hmm. And then he ends up in Riga on the 8th of September and actually spends a week there. Right. Which seems like quite a while to be stuck on a ship in a dock where you can't leave. Yeah. And he's, he just says that he was hidden in the forecastle the entire time. However, since he did manage to get away with that, he says that he left Riga on the 15th of September and made their way to Denmark. And this is where it gets extremely interesting, actually. Having reached the coast of Denmark, they don't actually dock in Denmark, they just kind of uh, reach the coast of Denmark. And he persuades five of the Danish seamen, which is all but one of the crew, to desert, steal a rowing boat, and row across the strait to Sweden, which is a five-hour row across the straits. And he says that, this in some ways is my favourite detail, he says that the sailors rowed and I acted as the navigator steering by the... That seems very convenient. Five hours of rowing across the strait between Denmark and Sweden, and he just happens to not take an oar. He just happens to be the navigator. Good work! (laughs) Yeah, he's also talked these people into leaving with him and just gone... There you go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's the oars. Knock yourself out. There's five of them. Surely there was one more oar to keep the keep the boat balanced while you're rowing. You would think so. Surely <laughs> they could have found something yeah. more strenuous for him to do. You know, you you used to row. Surely an even number of of oars on either side of the boat makes it easier. Is the usual way of yeah. doing it. Yes. So conveniently, there was one oar at least left out. <laughs> How handy for Dowd. Um, <laughs> and then, <laughs> but rather joyfully, well, not rather, having reached Sweden, he was then, of course, promptly arrested yes. for arriving in a neutral country illegally. Although the, uh, it must be said that this is actually fairly normal practice was for them to be arrested yeah. upon arrival while the Swedish or Swiss authorities alerted the British legation. It, it was quite normal for them to then be taken to the local consulate and then from there to Stockholm. Yeah. And so having arrived in Stockholm on the 21st of September, he didn't stay that long. He only stayed a couple of days and arrived back at Lookers in Fife, RAF base in Fife, on the 25th of September, 1943. Okay, well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please consider subscribing to the podcast. We can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, basically any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at F-I-T-W-I-O. If you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at fytwiopod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.